For all your fantasy football needs, check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show with me, Danny Kelly, along with Danny Heifetz and Craig Horlbeck. That's the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. It is Monday, October 23rd. Every time Netflix reveals its earnings, it's like a quarterly checkup on the entire entertainment industry. They're the leader in streaming video. And streaming video is slowly replacing television. So when Netflix has encountered problems, like it famously did in early 2022 when it missed its subscriber goals and that led to the great Netflix correction, the entire industry hits a reset. And on the flip side, when Netflix does well, stock prices of other entertainment companies tend to rise as well with the industry-wide confidence. Except that didn't happen last week. Netflix revealed some great numbers on Wednesday. It added 8.8 million new subscribers, way better than predicted and fueled in part by the crackdown on password sharing. The total is now 245 million subscribers worldwide, and it reported $1.8 billion in profit in the quarter. The stock immediately shot up 16%. Yet the other entertainment companies, Disney, Comcast, Paramount, Warner Brothers Discovery, they were all down last week, as was the broader market. My point is that in streaming, now more than ever, it's Netflix and then it's everyone else. We can argue about the content on each of these services. I happen to think that Max has the best selection. I know Hulu has fans. But as a business, Netflix is the only profitable service of the majors. It's got the biggest scale. It's the only one that consistently creates hits. And at least for now, it's got a decent growth narrative. That's what really matters most when you're talking about the trajectory in the market. I think that's part of the reason Ted Sarandos, the CEO of the company, has been the only CEO to openly criticize SAG-AFTRA, the union, when these negotiations recently broke down. Compared to the traditional studios, he's in a great place. But for how long? There are challenges to Netflix's dominance, namely how long things like the password-sharing crackdown will juice their subs, the advertising tier, and how successful that is, the content itself, whether these strikes will hurt growth next year. There's a lot to talk about with Netflix right now. So we got Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg back in here. We'll talk a little bit about the sag after negotiations. And mostly today, it's Netflix, where that stands and where it's going. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw from Bloomberg. Welcome back, Lucas. Coming at us from London. I'm here. I am. I've fully digested the live ABBA show. I'm ready to talk about it. That's what we're talking about today, right? All ABBA, all the time. No, you did go to the show last night. Give us your review. You, you better be positive or Craig's going to fight you. It's very fun. I'm interviewing one of the show's lead investors this week at a Bloomberg event, and the crowd was into it. They were dancing. They were waving their hands. It felt like it was coordinated. All right. That's not what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about Netflix or Kim Kardashian. We go back to it whenever we need a little boost in listenership. But this week, they had a pretty big reveal. Their earnings were great. 
They had 8.8 million new subscribers, basically a sign that the password sharing crackdown is working. They say they had a 70% increase in the number of members who are taking the advertising tier, which they make more money on. That's a little amorphous because we don't know 70% gain from what, but it's a sign that more people are doing the ad tier, which Netflix wants. And they have projected that they're going to continue to grow at a pretty robust rate into next year. So I looked at this and I think I had the same reaction that you did, which was, this is over. The streaming wars are over. Netflix is pulling away. The stock popped. Everything seems to be going right for them at a time when the rest of the streaming industry, especially the Hollywood studios, is really in disarray. They cannot figure out what the right strategy is to juice growth in streaming. Is it spend more? Is it spend less? Is it consolidate? Is it try to leverage your franchises? Is it put your franchises on linear and then put them on streaming? No one can figure it out except, I hate to say it because we're often cynical on the show, Netflix has figured it out. Their timing is almost unfairly perfect. And I've, we probably have talked about this before, but they borrow a ton of money to fund shows and build scale when debt is super cheap, interest rates are low, and the stock market is encouraging growth and cares less about profitability. And they sort of flip the switch to profitability and leveling off spending right as Wall Street decides that that's what it wants. Now, I get that some of that is intentional on their part. Obviously, they get a lot of credit for that. But they also get just remarkable credit for the timing. Well, they also did not expect Hollywood to sit on its hands for seven years. And only after Netflix had grown to a couple hundred million subscribers to get into the race for streaming in a serious way. Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO, has said this. He thought the traditional studios would get wise to them and get in the business a lot sooner than they did. And that's the question now is, was this preordained? Did the other studios ever have a chance? Or was Netflix as the first mover, the scale from the beginning outlet destined to win at this game? Well, look, there's definitely a first mover advantage. They were able to get real scale and build a habit, which is, I think, the part that some of these other services and critics of Netflix sort of miss is that Netflix is something for millions of people that they just turn on nightly to figure out what they want to watch on TV. I think most people probably open Netflix at least every three days or every other day. Whereas all these other services, other than like Disney with kids, they're sort of like once a week services. Like you come in to, to watch a, an original series when it's yeah, on. Show or by maybe show. You, yeah. Or maybe you go in because you know Max has a good movie library and you want to do that or something like that. Or you tune into Peacock or Paramount Plus for football. But Netflix has something fresh for you all the time. So no, do I think it was preordained? No, but they just they executed really well. And these other companies were slow. And then when they came in, really only Disney, I feel like, came in like full force with a plan and seemed to get it. And even they are now having a hard time. I mean, you asked a question, we were, we were texting about this, but you asked if Netflix was in the strongest position it's ever been. And I feel like the answer is probably yes, but it has as much to do with what you were talking about, which the competition is weaker than it's ever been. You go back five years and they had lots of growth ahead of them, 
but also the competition still looked pretty strong. Now, almost everyone looks weak. Well, it's not that these other companies can't catch Netflix, really. It's that they're not even really trying at this point. The pivot after the great Netflix correction of early 2022 has been away from scale at any cost. And we know the reasons. You've mentioned some of them. The fact that the market turned and the spigot for growth, which was debt, went away. But you look at what these other companies are doing, and they're not orienting themselves around competing with Netflix. They're orienting themselves around making the most money possible. If you are really trying to turn Max into a legitimate Netflix competitor, you do not put Ballers and The Pacific and Band of Brothers and Insecure on Netflix. You just don't do that. If you are Disney and you're trying to compete with Netflix, you don't talk about doing less. You talk about doing more. And Disney is absolutely talking about doing less right now. And maybe that's the right strategy. I think that these companies all have a different approach to this. If you're Disney, you got to think about making money on your product because that's what the market is demanding and your stock's in the toilet. So it's not like they are choosing to throw up the white flag here. They're sort of being forced into this. And I think that Netflix saw that from the beginning. They knew that if they spent, spent, spent and created scale and created this fire hose, like you mentioned, that some would try, but they wouldn't really be able to, given the economics of the rest of the business and the faltering TV landscape. Don't you think it's weird or ironic that Netflix built this big advantage using other people's programming for the most part, right? Like they licensed all these shows from other services that you could watch there. And then all these companies pull back. And now they're in a moment of some weakness. And rather than saying, look, we just got to push through it, they're going back to licensing. I know. It's amazing. It Maybe it does help them in the short term, but it's only going to allow, Net, one assumes, Netflix to build that moat even bigger. It is. That's what I'm saying. That's <laughs> It's another example of how they're pulling away. Because if you are Warner Brothers Discovery and you've got Max, you have no choice. They're under such pressure because of this enormous debt from the bad deals of the past and the whole AT&T debacle that they have to generate money as much as possible. And is anyone subscribing to Max for Insecure? Some, maybe. But it's not going to kill the service if you put that on Netflix. And they know that. So they're just trying to get as much money as possible. I mean, we are headed for a day, I think, when some of these lesser services very soon will decide to premiere their marquee shows on Netflix and then after that, put them on their own service. And you'll see it perhaps with a Peacock or Paramount Plus show first. You know, how much would Netflix pay for a new Taylor Sheridan show? The first window on that. Maybe Paramount would do that. Well, there's a version. I mean, there's a version of that that already happens when you consider that there's the studios owned by these companies already do produce shows for Netflix and Amazon and Apple. Yeah, but that's not the same as as a show that would typically go directly to the owned and operated service, like a Marvel show. I don't think Disney is quite there yet where they would do it with Marvel, but Paramount might do it with a Taylor Sheridan show. Maybe, you know, if there's a reboot of The Office that NBC is talking about doing for Peacock. Maybe you put that on Netflix first and then move it over to Peacock because you well, know... Well, if you're going to do that, you might as well just give up. But that's what's happening. 
I mean, we're moving slowly. I think and there's slowly a big there's that. a difference. I think it's more likely that you see some of those services either combine or disappear. Yes, I know. There was a CNBC report yesterday that Sherry Redstone would love to sell her company, but she just can't find anyone to do a deal with. It's like, are you kidding me? That ship has sailed. That company was in a great spot a couple of years ago when the market was different. They've had opportunities to sell off the pieces. She said no. Like, I do not feel bad for Sherry Redstone at that because if Paramount and Peacock merged or Max and Peacock merged, it would be in a much better position. Maybe not able to compete with Netflix still, but in a much better position than trying to go on its own. You say that, and I want to agree with you, but I still don't know if that is what makes the person go to that service more. NFL makes people go to the service. If Max had NFL, that's a game changer. And I mean, if you look back, what made people go to the Fox network in the early 90s? That was the same thing. It was, you know, had terrible stations. Nobody knew what the brand was. And Rupert Murdoch knew that if he put the NFL on Fox, it would turn into something that people had to watch. Now, that was a different environment. There were only a few television outlets at the time. Cable was growing, but it wasn't what it was. Now you have to have even more exclusive stuff. But the NFL qualifies as that. If Max had NFL, they're trying with the other sports, with NBA and MLB. But if Max had the NFL via combining with Paramount Plus and getting those CBS games, that's pretty good. You still would need to get the people who came in for that NFL game to then stick around and watch other stuff. And I can't tell how effective Peacock and Paramount Plus have been at that. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay, anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com town. Tap the banner to learn more. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less, and one because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. One thing that's interesting is that we've seen Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO, be a little more aggressive in pushing back against SAG-AFTRA during this standoff over whether the Guild should be paid an extra payment per subscriber in the negotiations. They want an extra payment 
for each streaming subscriber that goes directly to SAG After members. And Ted, both at your conference and elsewhere, has called that a tax, a levy. He's come right out and said this was a bridge too far. And he's really using rhetoric that is uh, more aggressive than you would have thought he would do. He's normally a mild guy and wants to be loved by the talent. And I think this is because he's got a little swagger right now. He sees what this strike has done to his bottom line. And for the most part, at least so far, it's been pretty good. They saved a bunch of money. Their free cash flow is extremely high right now. Uh, the cost of content. And they're still generating mass amounts of subscribers. So it has not hurt Netflix yet. It will, but it hasn't yet. And I think that's contributing to Ted being a little bit more confident and aggressive in these talks. Do you think it's also that he senses that some of the momentum behind the actors has sagged a little bit. It just feels like, you know, when the strike was at full tilt, way more of the pressure was on the studios. That writers had a lot of momentum, a lot of public sentiment behind them. And once that happened, most people felt like, okay, we were going to get, the strike was sort of ending and we were going to get this over. It just doesn't feel like there's maybe as much juice behind the actors negotiating. And they've made a couple of missteps with the, like the silly Halloween thing. And Well, having George Clooney and Ben Affleck and Scarlett Johansson and all these big name stars essentially come out and say, we're frustrated. We want to put forth our own proposals here to try to get a deal done. Even though the proposal that Clooney put forward was sort of a joke and didn't even really make sense or was not legal. They did put this out there that they wanted $150 million of their money to go to the union and that that could be sort of used as a carrot to help settle the strike. The union basically said, thanks, guys, but no thanks. It is polite as way as possible, as you can say to George Clooney. But it's a sign that there is some restlessness amongst the high earners who have now given up months and months of earning time for this strike. It's like when the showrunners started to ask for meetings to talk about it. And right. even though they, they didn't get as far as maybe issuing that proposal, but it was a sign that there was some restlessness in the body, which is one of the reasons why I think the writers ended up doing a deal then. Well, yeah, I mean, nobody wants to criticize George Clooney and the Guild is very careful not to do that. But if you read between the lines, that's what's going on is the high earners are pissed off. There's no deal yet. They are a little frustrated with their own Guild and they're trying to quote, help the situation. And basically, we're told, thanks, but we're good. We'll see. You know, the talks are starting up Tuesday. And the rhetoric from the SAG side has been, we are not backing down. We want this payment to be added on per subscriber. And the studios have basically said that's not happening. So we'll see where they give. I know we're very gushy and Netflix has won in a lot of ways or is, is ahead in a lot of ways. But I am curious how long this little boost they get or big boost they get from the password crackdown happens because they had language that made Wall Street very happy that was that it will be several quarters. But this has always been, you know, a short term boost, right? They, they oh, yeah. I mean, that's let's, so let's get into that. Let's get into the red flags, because even with all the hype and success of, around Netflix lately, there are a bunch of red flags. And you just mentioned the big one, which is the subscriber number is clearly being juiced by this password sharing crackdown, which is great. That's a validation of what Netflix said it would do, which was they needed a lever to boost engagement and subscribers, and they got it. But it's a temporary lever. I mean, they are smart about 
not having it all hit it in one quarter. They're parsing it out. And there are some Netflix freeloaders who still have not been told to get with the program or get off the service. So this is going to last for a couple quarters, but it does raise the question of what happens after. And I've seen some reports, I believe there's a Morgan Stanley report last week that basically said, yeah, now good times. Next year, not so great times. Yeah, I mean, I think that the two big questions are, is the advertising tier going to work? And is all this money that they've invested in gaming worth it? Because those are the video games. Yeah, in video games. They have spent now hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, buying gaming studios, commissioning projects. Like They've made a really big investment there. And those are the two areas where if you listen to their executives talk, they're mostly honest that they're not where they want to be. And the explanation, of course, is we're early, which is totally fine. They've only been doing advertising for a year. They've only been doing gaming for a couple of years. Gaming is a really tricky business. Disney tried for many years and failed. If they can't figure out advertising and they can't figure out gaming, then it's not clear what the future growth is. Unless the argument is just our streaming is like people were saying that we had tapped out, but it's not just password sharing. We're growing because there's still a lot more customers and yada, yada, yada. But we know that the available market for new customers is smaller for them than it used to be because they have so many damn people using it. Yeah, we've talked about the ad tier challenges before. So let's talk about gaming a little. Right now, they're doing mostly mobile games, and they are trying to leverage the few franchises that they have. They're doing a Wednesday game. They're doing an extraction game. Uh, I laugh, but I guess that is one of their big franchises. and. I see this not as a customer acquisition tool for Netflix, but as something extra. I mean, you talk about how people see streaming now as a thing they can jump in and out of. If they don't see shows they're liking, they just cancel. And then if something comes out that they feel they need to resubscribe for, they resubscribe. Gaming is the glue, I think, that holds people to the service or some people. If they're considering canceling it's like oh well i do play that wednesday game things like that that's now eventually i think they want it to be a a lure on its own but that's what i think they get out of gaming right now yeah they have a little bit of an issue in that because of the way that the apple rules are you can't game within netflix so they kick people out to different apps for their games at least on mobile I, I think that that's part of the problem. What do you see as the the red flags, or what? Well, what the ones you haven't mentioned is the elephant in the room. That next year there's going to be a dearth of U.S. made content because of the strike. I mean, I think Netflix really was counting on Stranger Things in the first or second quarter of next year, and they always get a boost off of that. They're not going to have that because of the strike, and a lot of the American shows and movies are just not going to be there. Now, we've talked about this. They have the foreign stuff. They have a lot of the reality unscripted that can fill the holes. But the big franchises are U.S. scripted shows. And those are not going to be there. Yeah. And they just had their biggest second quarter ever. Second quarter usually kind of a weak one for them. And next year's second quarter will presumably be right around the time where some of the boost from password sharing goes away and they'll have a smaller slate. I don't think it's going to be as dire as you say. I don't know if it's dire, but I think a lot of these shows that they thought they would have and that they planned a year, year and a half out 
this strike is going longer than any of these CEOs thought it would. And no they're having to adjust. Yeah, I know that if they, since they didn't get production up and running in the fall, they'll definitely take a little bit of a hit next year. I think it'll be different for features and for TV. And I do wonder how much... I mean, we've talked about what they can learn from the strike and how much having shows from other people will still float them. Now, maybe that doesn't help them with new signups. Maybe that just helps them with continued engagement. But I don't, ha- I don't have a clear enough sense for just how much the schedule next year has been disrupted. It's obviously been affected. Yeah, and you could make the argument that if there are a lot fewer summer movies, maybe the competition elsewhere is not going to be great. Certainly, the competition on other services will also be impacted. So it's not like they're going to you know, have a new season of White Lotus to compete against in the spring. That's also been delayed. The other factor here that I think is sort of another elephant in the room at Netflix is that the movies are not where they need to be. The movies need to be better at Netflix. They should, the, given the money they are spending on original movies, they need to move the needle and create culture and create you know mass amounts of viewership for the movies as a genre on Netflix. And for the most part, with exceptions, they're not. It's just, given the spending, they need to make that better. Well, and they, they, they haven't really cracked animation. Well, they're trying. They just took over the Apple deal with, with Skydance. With David Ellison's company. Yeah, David yeah. Ellison moved. That, that was an interesting one because Apple is getting out of the family animation business, essentially, and saying, we don't want Skydance Animation, which has John Lasseter, who's a co-founder of Pixar. And they're now moving that deal over to Netflix, which originally wanted that deal and lost it to Apple. Now it has it back. But these animated movies take forever and cost a lot to make. And Netflix is now saying we're willing to spend the money. That's another example of how Netflix being a profitable service can afford to take that risk. I mean, that's that's billions of dollars. They're essentially saying they want to spend on animated movies. Do you guys think it even makes sense for Netflix to spend big on movies, considering how short the shelf life is for movies on the platform that they just come and disappear in a week or two? That, that, that It's almost like Netflix movies are different from other kinds of movies. It's like a, it's like a third category now. It's TV, movies, and Netflix movies. Craig, you're, but you're presuming these movies have to just disappear. If they were good and had traction, they might turn into something that people return to or tell their friends about and not just, oh, there's Chris Hemsworth. I know him. Click. And then 30 minutes, you're like asleep. I think the sweet spot for Netflix movies remains the type of movies that studios won't do as much of anymore. It's the dramas, it's the rom-coms. It's like that 30 million or even you know 10 million to $80 million movie where making that effectively a home movie, a TV movie, a streaming movie, whatever, makes perfect financial sense. There's a real audience for it. And Netflix has actually delivered really well on a number of them. Once they get north of a hundred million budget, that's where I do feel like some kind of theatrical release that was meaningful would make more sense if they wanted to go that way. Yeah, what's the point of making a two hundred million dollar movie if you can't make a billion dollars off of it, like Barbie or Oppenheimer? Like, if there's no upside there, is it worth doing it? Because it's franchise creation. All of these big two hundred million dollar plays by Netflix, they had franchise goals. But has that ever worked on streaming? What's franchise? Well, they're doing a streaming? sequel. They say they're doing a sequel to Red Notice. I will I'll believe that when it happens. That's not a franchise. They did make a sequel to Extraction. That was a hit for them. They are Hearts of Stone. I'm sure they would like to make a sequel. I found that movie unwatchable. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, but who knows? Like, that's the justification for doing these kinds of movies. 
But I agree that the return that you get on a $200 million direct-to-streaming movie doesn't really make sense to me. All of the other companies have basically said as much. The only one that has not is Netflix. Yet, still spending the same amount of money or more on these big movies. Hits change everything, and maybe one of these will really hit and change the game, but it hasn't happened so far. All right, Lucas, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Pat. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you follow through on your pledge to see Killers of the Flower Moon this past weekend? No. Oh. It turns out three and a half hours is hard to plan around if you're not going alone to the movie. But I will see it in theaters. I make that pledge. I will see it. You will. But you did not go yes. opening weekend. And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of people were in your shoes as well. It did 23 million domestic. It only did 21 million overseas. So 44 million total for a movie that cost well over $200 million. Not great. No. Do you, why do you think it floundered internationally? Do you think it's because this is like a, a very American rooted story and it, it didn't appeal? The Native overseas? American thing? No, I think it's three and a half hours. It's a crime against your butt is what it is. Your butt is going to go numb sitting for that long. And honestly, it's almost financially, fiscally irresponsible of Martin Scorsese to do this to Apple. I know it's his right. It, people love the movie. You know, fans are going crazy over it. But if you want to make a commercially viable entertainment product, especially when you spend more than $200 million of somebody else's money on it, you can't make it three and a half hours. That's, just, that's like a middle finger to your investors. If this were 1995 and, and Scorsese wanted to make a three and a half hour movie, would a studio have let him back then? No, no studio would do it now. Paramount was developing this movie and dumped it on Apple. The history of Martin Scorsese since Wolf of Wall Street, which was three hours and did work and made money for its investors, in the decades since then, he has consistently lost money for people. The funny thing is when I see all these reports on box office this weekend, yeah, 40 million worldwide is not a great number for a movie that costs this much, but the same box office metrics don't really apply to Apple. That's basically just a euphemism for Apple is fine with losing money on a movie because they have so much money to lose and it's eventually going to go on their streaming service and they'll get some subscribers off of that. But that's the case for every movie. You'll see us talking about Warner Brothers movies in the same way. Like, oh, it's totally fine that the Flash bombed, you know, because the metrics don't apply to Warner Brothers because they've got Max and they can put it on there. Every studio has a streaming service or has an output deal with a streaming service. And Apple was just willing to spend the money on this movie and then ultimately put it on Apple TV Plus, maybe get some Oscars out of it. You know, it, it does have awards potential, but this is just a money loser. And my prediction today is that the next planned collaboration between Scorsese, Leo DiCaprio, and Apple, which is another adaptation of a David Grand book called The Wager, my prediction is that movie will not happen. Will not happen with Apple. Apple will say, thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to make this movie. Maybe there will be another sucker that will come along and see Oscar potential. Sucker? And make this. Listen to you. How dare you? I'm, I mean, sucker. listen, I'm not talking about the creative on this. Creatively, more power to him. He's 80 years old. He's earned the right to ask for whatever budget he wants to ask for. And consistently, people will give him the money to make these movies. 
I'm talking from a business perspective. It is not a smart bet to get into business with Martin Scorsese. He wildly overspends. He does whatever he wants. He will turn in a cut at three and a half hours, which many filmmakers do, but then are told to cut an hour out of it. And they do. He does not. So if you get into business with Martin Scorsese and you get screwed on the money, it's kind of your own fault at this point. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw, producer Craig Horbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. And I want to thank you. We will see you later this week. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.